I don't want to dive with people that aren't scared because they don't they don't have the same appreciation for the risk we're taking on. But I think that's how you get a chance to have a remarkable opportunity for discovery is is to step into the darkness. So if you want uncertainty in your life, find something that scares you and then mm-hmm. step towards it instead of away from it. Hello and welcome to another episode of Airplane Mode. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. Today's guest is Jill Heinerth. Jill is an expert cave diver whose job is to explore underwater caverns for a living. She's done that all over the world and has even dove in glaciers in Antarctica. She has recently released a book called Into the Planet that chronicles her 30 plus year career as a cave diver. I wanted to have Jill on not just because I know she's a great storyteller from having read the book, but also because when we were thinking about what type of jobs require a specific strength or confidence, Cave Diver has to be at the top of or very near the top of that list. Speaking from my own experience, I know when I'm rattled or my confidence is shaken, it's usually because of something scary or nerve-wracking. Generally, those situations are not life or death. For Jill... Every time she goes onto one of these dives, the situation very often is life or death. Jill has to have the confidence that no matter how disastrous a situation underwater might be, she can get herself out of it. She can't let the type of self-doubt that derails so many of us derail her. She just doesn't have time. And even though we're unlikely to be diving into underwater caves, though, shout out if you do do that, we could all use some help on how to walk ourselves back from that moment where we're feeling panicked or we completely lose our confidence. Luckily, since Jill has 30 years experience of doing this, she has some great tips on how to do exactly that. She also has some great stories and has lived an incredible adventurous life, has done a lot of great activist work on behalf of the planet and behalf of our water. And the book is a scintillating read. What you guys will get here is just a little tip of the iceberg in terms of what you'll get in the book. So I encourage you to go out and check it out. Again, it's Into the Planet. And this is my conversation with Jill Heinerth. Jill Heinerth, welcome to Airplane Mode. Thanks, good to be here. We're here talking about your newest book. Your your newest book, your first book? Well, it's my first, you know, sort of nonfiction memoir. I've written a bunch of technical books in the past, but this is it. This okay. is my life. <laughs> <laughs> How does that feel to say that, that that is comprised in a book now? How does that feel? It's a scary process, you know? I mean, being like truthful and, and intimate about all the details of, of your life. I mean... You got to be that way if you're, if you're going to make a good read, mm-hmm. but it's it's uh, it's a little nerve wracking to let loose into the world. Yeah, I imagine it's a real exercise in vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to ask you to retread a few things that you talk about in the book, but I just think it's um, you know your career has been has such a I, I think it would be fair to call non traditional. So I'm very yeah. I'm, I'm curious to you know how does one even get into cave diving yeah uh by accident <laughs> i don't know uh, it wasn't my first career in life i mean i wanted to be a diver from the time i was a little kid i was fascinated with the underwater world and i've always liked caves i've always liked small spaces but i'm an artist my first career in life was in the advertising business so i'm a creative person uh-huh. and uh it was just after a few years into that despite fantastic success at what I was doing, I realized I couldn't live and work indoors, that I I wanted to find a way to be creative underwater. So I virtually had to create a career path for myself, a hybrid career. And you say you knew you liked caves and small spaces. That So 
I'm the opposite. I'm yeah. not claustrophobic necessarily, but they sort of, you know, just thinking about that makes me be like, ah, uh, shiver a little bit. How did you discover, do you remember when you first discovered that? That I liked small spaces? Yes. Oh, gosh. I mean, I was the little kid that used to, like, build a fort inside the cupboard under the kitchen sink or in the top shelf of the closet. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just always, I always liked that. Like, I liked camping in a little teeny tent in the backyard. <laughs> I, so, I don't know if that's something that's just genetically uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> predisposed or or what, but... But unlike most people, I mean, most people are smart, like you, <laughs> and and they feel the sense of danger that that fuels a bit of claustrophobia. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, I was going to ask you where your sense of curiosity and wonder mm. comes from. I've always loved learning. I've okay. always loved you know reading and experimenting. And I mean, I write in the book that this is this is probably genetic. Uh-huh. I. I probably carry what they call the 7R gene, which which means I'm a sensation seeker, um, a novelty seeker. I like change. I like learning curves. It doesn't mean I'm reckless. Uh-huh. It doesn't mean I'm an adrenaline junkie. Yeah. That's not really it at all. But I certainly like newness mm-hmm. and learning. And it gets me nicely into one thing I, I definitely want to talk about with you, which is sort of uncertainty and yeah. confidence in the in the face of uncertainty. You know, you write in the book, I've learned to embrace fear as a positive catalyst in my life as I dwell on the threshold of darkness, darkness being the caves and caverns I'm sure you go into. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might be scared, but I don't run away. I dance in the joy of uncertainty. Like a lot of people want to bring some more uncertainty into their life, I think, myself mm-hmm. included, but mm-hmm. sort of don't know how to do it. Yeah. And so I would love to try to unpack what that moment of sort of being on the threshold of darkness or uncertainty yeah. is like. Yeah. So my first question, I guess, is like, do you still get nervous or scared when oh, you're when you're going to dive? Always. Yeah. You've been doing this for how many years now? Oh, like more than thirty years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Always, and and I think that's important because it means that I care about the outcome. It means mm-hmm. that I care about getting home safe. I don't want to dive with people that aren't scared because they don't they don't have the same appreciation for the risk we're taking on. But I think that's how. That's how you get a chance to have uh, a remarkable opportunity for discovery is is to step into the darkness. So if you want uncertainty in your life, find something that scares you and then mm-hmm. step towards it instead of away from it. Because when you're on that edge of yeah. darkness, like if you stand there for a bit, first of all, your eyes might adjust to the light a little bit, uh-huh. right? And then it's not quite so scary. <laughs> but I really think that like when you've got that sort of tingle of, uh-huh. of fear and uncertainty, it's whether you have the opportunity to do something you've never done before or maybe even something that's new for humanity. And yeah. if we all did that, I mean, wouldn't that be really exciting for the world? You know? I think so. <laughs> throw, out, throw out the status quo. <laughs> yeah. Was that something you had to learn or is that, again, something that was sort of Oh, I absolutely had to learn that. I mean, I I grew up in a very traditional family that would have have liked to see me just sort of tick off the boxes, do Mm -hmm. well in school, you know, go be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer and and then – you know, I don't know how this supposedly fits, but then then go do the right thing of of having a family and children uh-huh. and everything else. And and uh, I didn't do any of that. I, yeah, I did the exact opposite. How old were you when you decided to leave the advertising business that you that was your business, right? Yeah, you had started yeah, and yeah. and pursue 
diving as a as a full-time career. Yeah, I mean, I was in my 20s and I'd made the most money in in my life even <laughs> to this day in advertising. And I I didn't dislike what I was doing. I love the creative process. That's part of what drives me. I love problem solving. And when you're doing like new and different clients every day and dreaming up ideas for for great companies, that's really good for a person like me that likes Again, change and uncertainty and challenge. But it was the whole indoor-outdoor thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> I love being outdoors. Uh-huh. And I knew that I needed to find a way to work outdoors and free of schedules and bosses and things like that. I needed I needed to be self-driven. I moved to the Cayman Islands and uh, literally with a suitcase full of dive gear wow. thinking, okay, I'm going to have to learn how to be a, an underwater photographer now because up until that point, I mean – I had dabbled, but I had no formal training in underwater photography. And the best way to become an underwater photographer is to just start doing it. (laughs) So I just had the confidence, I guess, that I could just take one step towards what I was really dreaming about. Like, it's really hard to solve huge problems in life. Like, you know, it's really hard to figure out how to solve global climate change. It's really hard to figure out how to become like, you know, the CEO of the company. It's really hard to figure out how to become a cave diver that makes a living. <laughs> and those are too big. Yeah. It's really big to figure out how to survive when you're trapped in an underwater cave and the line is broken and you can't see and your buddy's panicking and she's stuck and everything's gone wrong and you think you might die. But we, in all of those cases, always know what the next best small step is towards survival or success. And and life is just a series of those small steps in the right direction before they build up and turn into something really fantastic, like surviving a, a, a terrible caving accident or yeah. becoming the CEO or, you know, creating a life that you love. Yeah. yeah. So can we walk through that on like a granular level? So if you yeah. – if you're in a cave and, yeah. and something catastrophic mm-hmm. happens, mm-hmm. how do you sort of walk your way out of the panic that I imagine sets sure. in? Like, yeah, I mean, anybody's first reaction is like their heart rate starts to mm-hmm. race, their breathing starts to increase, and then their mind starts to get completely cluttered with with useless thoughts. It's hmm. emotions. It's all emotions mm-hmm. that are causing all of that. So the first thing you have to do is get that mind-body control and just say, hmm, emotions, you won't serve me well right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's time to focus on being pragmatic. And so that could be a battle. You know, it's like the angel and devil on your shoulder kind of thing. Like, you know, the devilish emotions keep trying to come back every time something else seems scarier and scarier. Like they keep saying, you know, you might die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you have to go, whoop, sorry, can't think about that now. And and you just have to be steely, cold, emotionless until later. I mean, because later you have to come face to face with mm-hmm. those demons and grieve or, or or just go through the PTSD of it all. But you have to learn how to do that. It doesn't you don't do it well the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? There might be something wrong with you if you did, I feel like. Survival doesn't have to be like pretty. It just has to be effective, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but but it is something that we learn how to do. And I didn't learn how to survive being an excellent cave diver from cave diving. I learned by fighting off a burglar in my house, mm-hmm. you know. I learned about the true grit of fear from from that experience and how I responded to fear. And it wasn't pretty at first, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, can, yeah. You, can you walk us through that story a little bit? Yeah, I was in university and I'd moved off campus into a house. And the first night in the house when I had the only key and my girlfriends hadn't even moved in, someone broke into the house. And I woke up in the middle of the night to hear someone like rifling through things downstairs. And I thought, oh, you know, my God, you know, pull the covers over my head, just hide kind of thing. Maybe he'll go away. So that's a natural response, just, you know, fetal position, mm-hmm. kind of, ah, you know. Um, it, but he wasn't going away. So I thought, okay, I got to make noise, but I can't let him know I'm a woman. So I'm just going to get out of bed and I'm going to stomp around, you know, stomp around on the floor. So he hears someone upstairs and it'll scare him out of the house. And um, even just standing up into that positive stance and then walking and making noise with my feet gave me some power, you know. Mm. But I was still terrified, yeah. you know, uh, and it didn't stop him. So to make a long story short, I mean, he worked his way through the house room by room by room, knowing that I was upstairs and slowly worked his way up the stairs, went through the closet, the bathroom, everything outside my room until he finally basically ripped the hinges off the door and came after me. And I had to fight for my life. I, I, that was the that was the choice in that moment. And the, the emotions brought me there, you know. Do I want to die or do I want to fight for my life? And I, I slashed him with a X-Acto knife off my drafting table and surprised him so much from fighting back, basically, that that I won, you know. Um, and that experience was traumatic. I mean, it was I didn't sleep for days. I mean, mm. I, I woke up for years yeah. fighting off that same burglar in the middle of the night. And and it was only through processing that experience that I that I realized I could do better next time. Huh. And each time I've had to face fear in a really bad situation underwater or or, you know, dealing with a body recovery and cave diving, I I've learned to put that stuff aside. What's the very first step in putting it aside? You focus on your breathing? Breathing, absolutely. First thing has to be to take that deep breath. Because as soon as you take that deep breath, immediately your heart rate starts to Mm -hmm. go down. And and it it tries to come back. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's primal. It's it's a physical response. And, you know, your heartbeat tries to race. Your jaw starts to quiver or whatever. And you just have to keep going, no, no, take that deep breath, like, way down into the bottom of your lungs and just fill up from the bottom in that sort of Zen meditation way all the way up into your shoulders and neck. And then just when you exhale, throw it away, throw away the emotions. Has that served you that sort of breathing technique? Can you think of a time that has served you out of the water? I mean, I know the burglar example, but maybe in like a more mundane every, every day way, does that serve you in any, in any way? Oh yeah. I've used it all the time. I mean, there was a time when I helped someone who'd been in a head on collision on the highway and it was really scary. Like the car was messed up. She was in really bad shape. The car was, uh, was on fire in the, in the front and she's screaming and I remember like, holy crap, having to take that deep breath to just focus on what needed to be done. But but I've also used it just dealing with people when I get reactions that I don't expect. Like when a, mm. when a bully reaches out on the internet with some crap, you know, I'm like at first you start to shake. You're like, what uh-huh. they think that about me? Oh, my God. You know, yeah. it's like, 
okay, take a deep breath and throw that away. Think this through. Like, where is this coming from? Yes. It's not about me. It's about them. Uh-huh. You know? uh-huh. Yeah. That's so great advice. It helps. I was in an Airbnb this weekend and <laughs> started a small fire. And oh. I, I could have I could have used this advice. <laughs> Um, oh man are you gonna get badly rated as a well, guest no I, I mean i ran down it was a it was a two-story house mm-hmm. top floor they're separate mm-hmm. apartments and the owner was in the bottom floor and we the kitchen caught the like burner hadn't been cleaned we should have noticed it probably mm-hmm. in his defense he maybe should have cleaned it and it like started a small fire in the kitchen and i could not <laughs> find the fire extinguisher i was in a full panic i did not yeah. take a breath at all but we ended up Look, we went downstairs and woke him up and got the fire extinguisher. It was fine. But this is good to know. Next time I light an Airbnb on fire, this will be a, I can use that the I've, breathing technique. I've had three fires in my life. So two from exploded batteries. And okay. I get it. It's scary. That, yeah. That's, I still got PTSD over the fires. And I had one in my rebreather once. Wow. Underwater. So what do yeah. you do in an underwater? <laughs> what is that? Walk me through one of those. What happens? Uh, yeah. So underwater, uh, I was in a cave, a deep cave. How yeah, deep? 300 feet deep. Wow. So first you have to enter through a restriction. A restriction is a place where your your body's scraping to get uh-huh. in, basically. So there's a restriction to get in, and then this vertical fissure that just drops, drops, drops down into another room. And then about 180 feet, another restriction drops, drops, drops. Now I'm at 300 feet deep, and I hear this kaboom in the life support equipment that I'm wearing. It's called a rebreather. Mm-hmm. Same thing you would wear if you were making a spacewalk from the International Space Station. So a big backpack delivering my life support gases. And it's it's really important because it's mixing a mix of oxygen, nitrogen, and helium in the right percentages to keep you alive on these deep, deep depths. So I hear a kaboom, and then all of a sudden, my rebreather's malfunctioning, and it's shooting pure oxygen into my breathing loop. And pure oxygen at 300 feet deep will kill you really fast. Mm. So if you if you breathe pure oxygen that deep, you can have a convulsion. And when you have a convulsion underwater, you drown. So I immediately had to like to turn off the electronics, shut down my oxygen supply, and figure out how to like manually operate the rebreather to get myself safely back out of the cave and through all the decompression um, before I could get to the surface. So I actually didn't even know what had caused this incident. But when I finally got out of the water at the end of the dive, my rebreather was still fizzing and popping. And there's a big hole in the back from this lithium sea cell that had exploded underwater. So (laughs) So wait, I have a lot of questions. What what were you... When you stopped breathing the pure oxygen, mm-hmm. what were you breathing? Like, Well, the rebreather is electronically controlled, okay. but we have the ability I to see. manually intervene. So I literally had to shut off the electronics and say, okay, you stop doing your thing and isolate that oxygen that was like spewing into the rebreather, turn off a valve. And then I had to manually watch a little like analog um, display and and manually adjust my life support gases all the way out and so you're you were down at how deep when that happened 300 feet deep and then how long did it take to get out from that uh it was i'm trying to remember but it's a good 90 minutes to two hours of decompression to get myself all the way back out to the surface and And so you have to do that while swimming through these restrictions yeah yeah good god but in all honesty, it didn't. It didn't seem as big a deal 
in the moment mm-hmm. as it did afterwards, yeah. which is often the case when big things happen. Mm-hmm. Like in the moment, you don't even really have the full perspective of what you're experiencing, what you're doing, what you're accomplishing. It's only afterwards that you go, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, plus, I didn't know there was a giant hole in the back of my yeah. rear either. <laughs> How does dealing... Well, one cave diving specific question first, just mm-hmm. out of my own curiosity. But when you enter a restriction, mm-hmm. you don't know that there's going to be something on the other side necessarily, or do you? Well, there's two ways to look at it. The way I usually dive through a restriction is I'm in a big space. Yeah. And then there's this tight little hole that I've got to squeeze through to get to the next big space. I see. Now, there's other times when you're just in really small cave that continues to meander Um, And you have to be a lot more careful about the size of that space and how restricted it is. Because if you don't know if you can turn around, then you're going to have to be able to back out. And backing out in a restriction is really hard. It's much easier to get stuck that way. But so how do you know when you go in a restriction? Well, you don't. I mean, you've got to get there and size it up. And Uh in some cases, we take some of our equipment off and pass it through first. I see. um, but yeah, it's in the end, it's a risk assessment choice. And I've wow. lost a few friends that made the wrong choice and didn't get out, you know. How does the fear you feel on a dive now compare to the fear you felt 30 years ago when you first started? You know, there's still it's still always there um, before the dive. But when I actually start the dive, like when I actually get my head below the water, I'm done with it. So uh-huh. I allow the fear to inform me about what might kill me today mm-hmm. <laughs> and i literally you know close my eyes and do a little like thought process before i get in the water where i go okay well you know this could happen that could happen but here's how i'll solve it and yeah i got the equipment to do that yeah all right so by the time i get in the water it's like yeah i got this and if something goes wrong i've just rehearsed it huh. and i'm going to be successful at recovering from it how often are the problems you encounter not problems you rehearsed Oh, yeah. You know, I'm 54 years old today. and It's your I birthday s- today? No, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. I was like, oh, wow, we need to celebrate. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, so I'm 54 years old and I still hear things from divers, like things that have happened to their gear or things that have happened to them that, that I hadn't heard before. I'm like, whoa, okay, that's a new one. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, it's usually some snowball of events that are like, wow, that's amazing. All of that could happen in one dive. <laughs> But it requires some flexibility, I guess, to yeah. deal with the, I mean, it is, like you're saying, it's mm-hmm. being creative underwater, sort of it problem is. solving. and yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. How does dealing with crises like that then change the way you deal with stress out of the water? Oh, man, it gives you a really different viewpoint in life. I mean, I come back from an expedition that's been like harrowing for 60 days where I've been like on the ball, like laser sharp focus for 60 days. And then I get into the grocery store lineup yeah. and it's like somebody's complaining that there's like, there's no broccoli in the, <laughs> in the produce aisle. And I'm like, really? You know, <laughs> like, I don't get, you know, I hear see someone with road rage because traffic's not moving fast enough and I can barely drive the speed limit when I come home from these projects. It's, it's. So, yeah, it gives you a different perspective on life's problems. I'm thinking about that astronaut overview syndrome where it's like they say that people go to space and then see the Earth from that far. It sort of changes their perspective in, I would imagine, a profound way. Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, and from the cave diving perspective, like 
you know, I'm swimming through the veins of Mother Earth. I'm swimming through the sustenance of the planet. And I mean, that's a almost a spiritual opportunity for me, but it also it also helps me to see how connected we are as a huh. planet, you know? Like that water's not I mean, we have all the water we're ever going to have on this earth, you know, and we just keep using it over and over and over again. You know, you might be uh, breathing in the humid air of Shakespeare's tears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> or or whatever. Wow. Like, I love that. Yeah. So it's it's one water. It's one world. And it does definitely give me that perspective that we're in this together. Huh. Yeah. Have you found that it makes you more compassionate? Yeah, whether that it's that experience with Mother Earth or whether it's the experiences of loss and grief that mm. I've been through, I, I I like to think that I'm compassionate and empathetic to others. I mean, we all we all have different measures of what's hard and causes us grief in life, and and I get it. I think until you've suffered a loss, you can't really understand anyone else's loss. Maybe. Mm sort of a heavy topic for Monday mm. afternoon, but mm. how would you say that diving has changed your comfort level with the idea of death? I'm not afraid of dying. Huh. I'm more afraid of not living fully, you know? I also realize life is incredibly fleeting. I mean, I've lost so many friends in this this sport of cave diving and tech diving. Some of them that I expected were going to kill themselves in the sport and others that just shocked me to my core, you know, but I realized that every day is precious and uh-huh. my husband doesn't do what I do. So he's home waiting yeah. every day and that's really hard for him. But it means when I come home, that life together, that time together is really, really special. You have a moment in, in, in the book where you're talking about, you say, did people wonder why I risked my life to map wet rocks? Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a little, not, not as generous as you could have been to yourself. <laughs> but, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the underlying question there is sort of like, and given that we're talking about mm-hmm. death, mm-hmm. in some ways the ultimate consequence, like why do this? I guess that's why I wrote this book, maybe. I mean, ultimately, that's probably my plea to the world to say that what I do matters. You know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe I'm still that little girl trying to like tug on daddy's sleeve going, you know, I'm doing something cool, you know? <laughs> but, but, you know, beyond fulfilling for me, I think it matters to humanity and to our scientific understanding of the planet. Like, I don't want to go on dives that don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I've turned down expeditions because they didn't feel right or because they didn't feel like they mattered, you know. So that's important to me to help people understand, like, how their lives are interconnected with their water systems. But but also some of the magical things that I get to see in caves. I mean, the biology of caves is so incredible. These things that live in the darkness for their entire life cycle huh. that they can teach us about evolution and survival or or the remains of Mayan civilizations that I find in Mexican caves yeah. or or the evidence of climate change inside a cave in the Bahamas. Like these are museums of natural history and there's a lot that we can learn from these places. Like we've learned so much about space already and we know a whole lot less about caves and oceans on our planet. And yet, and yet the oceans are the lungs of the planet creating the very oxygen that we breathe. And the caves are, are delivering the water of the very source of life to humanity. So I hope people will take away not just an inspiration to embrace fear, but I think that they'll learn a little bit more about the water planet from reading the book. Yeah, I think they will. 
haven't Good. read it. <laughs> <laughs> to that point about finding purpose and meaning in your work, mm-hmm. what would you say to someone who was thinking about leaving mm-hmm. a traditional job for a less traditional job yeah. and sort of scared yeah. to take that leap? What, what advice would you give them? Oh, do what you love. You know, do what you love. The money and the success will follow. And your idea of success will also morph in that whole experience. Like, but definitely do what you love. Like, Today is so different than when I was a kid. I mean, when I was a kid, we took these career tests and they tried to map us into, oh, well, you should be a secretary or, yeah. you know, or, or you could be a pharmacist, uh, a job that you would take for the rest of your life and work for someone, you know. Yeah. But today, people have to be explorers. They have to create hybrid careers. I mean, this is the gig economy, and you might never know where the next paycheck is coming from. you got to be mobile, but you have the global interconnectivity of the internet to reach out, meet people, to ask for a gig. Like, I got every opportunity in cave diving and expeditions from volunteering, from, like, calling up someone I didn't know and saying, how can I work with you? It's interesting because you you were very successful, it sounds like, in the advertising business, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. what did you learn leaving that? Were there things you thought were going to make you happy, be it money mm-hmm. or something else on the traditional path? And then when yeah. you took a less traditional path, you, mm-hmm. you learned, oh, that's actually not that link to yeah. my happiness or contentedness. I was, I was pretty successful in university, and my close friend in university said, race you to the top. That was the last thing she said to me after our convocation from university. And I thought, race you to the top. Well, that's really interesting. Um, But that's how I felt when I started my business and, you know, chased all those accounts and and worked hard to create a, a good company. But I didn't find satisfaction in the end, like the money, the you know, the nice red sports car, the yeah. awesome little apartment in High Park in Toronto. It just... It was fine, you know. Everybody else thought I was successful, but inside there was something very deep missing in in my human experience, I guess. It was really hard to let go of that. But, huh. you know, when I finally did, like one day into letting go of it, it was like, well, why was that so hard? <laughs> you know? And once you've done it once, it's easier. Yeah. <laughs> What are the, you were talking earlier about sort of saying to the emotions, mm-hmm. you won't serve me right now, mm-hmm. but then saying there needs to be a sort of debriefing process oh, where you yeah. come to, term with, to terms with those feelings, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. my first question, I guess, would be, what are the downsides of compartmentalizing when you don't sort of have that mm-hmm. time to engage with the feelings that in a mm-hmm. moment of panic, you have to sort of put away? It's tough. I mean, when... When something really bad happens or scary or whatever, and you get this sort of post-traumatic stress from it, especially from the fact that you haven't honored those emotions yet, it just kind of eats away at you. It's corrosive until you have that opportunity Hmm. to just really sit down and cry and think it through. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I still don't have PTSD over some of the things that have happened in life and that I haven't fully processed those But, I mean, there was one really scary day when I thought I wasn't coming home, and it scared the crap out of my husband. And he literally came to me and said, dude, why do you have to keep doing this? Like, when is enough? Like, when can you just, like, slow down and, like, be my wife, you know? Be my wife. And when are we going to do something that's like an expedition, you know, that kind of – when will you give me that much time in your life? And 
through that process of realizing that I had to not only deal with my own PTSD, but was his, we did drop everything. I I dropped everything and, and spent four months and we rode our bicycles 7,000 kilometers wow. <laughs> together to process that. And we took a documentary film that we made called We Are Water and we decided that as we rode our bicycles, we would show it every night to people and in dive clubs and libraries and all kinds of places. And in the process of him watching me present our film and, you know, really looking me in the eyes and hearing me talk about what cave diving is to me, he realized that that that's what makes the person that he fell in love with, you know? So it was that very mature recognition that that I can't stop her from being who she is. I can't change her. I fell in love with with that girl, you know, that girl that scares the crap out of me. And so I have to accept it. And I think that was a a big lesson for both of us. And I think what creates the incredible bond of our marriage today. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking just in my own relationships, the sort of things that that sometimes are challenging about partners yeah. are sort of the flip side of the yeah. coin of the thing you love about them, right? And you can't yeah. sort of take out one of those threads without unraveling the whole tapestry. Absolutely. I mean, I think in every other relationship I had, there was like, I thought I would change my partner in some way. Mm -hmm. I I could fix something, you know? And in this, in this very remarkable, you know, relationship with Robert, I realized, no, like we both accept each other for who we are and we want to learn to love that person that Mm -hmm. we first met and keep that alive, you know? It's beautiful. Yeah. It's aspirational. Yeah. (laughs) When was the last time you were rattled, Jill? <laughs> you, you seem almost unflappable. Oh, there's lots of things that rattle me. Really? New York City rattles me a little huh. bit. Driving. <laughs> what's the most? Yeah. What's the most mundane thing that rattles you? Mm, driving. Really? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. All these people around me are completely out of control. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. They're not doing proper risk assessments. They're just uh, no. Yeah. No. You talk a little bit in the book about going these expeditions that you have to expend immense amount of resources financially, psychologically, and then maybe not even getting the footage you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What has that sort of taught you about letting go of something that you've invested tons of time in, mm-hmm. but isn't you just can't get it there? What has that taught you about failure? Those those sorts of things. Well, I think it's really important to experience failure. I mean, I I've reframed that into discovery learning. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like. It's like, okay, so we didn't make any money, but did we learn something yeah. from this? <laughs> you know? So I think that's important, but I think it's also important and, and certainly something that's kept me alive is that you've got to be willing to be within a hair's breadth of what you perceive as success. You know, the gold treasure chest is within arm's reach, but you have to say, no, not today. You know, huh. like I've traveled to the far end of the earth on an expedition that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm literally on the swim platform ready to go diving. And then one of my O2 sensors in my rebreather craps out. And I have to turn to the teammates who have also, you know, done all this preparation and readiness to be there. And I have to go, I'm sorry, I can't do this dive. You wow. know? So there's been several occasions in my life where I've had to do that and just say, and, and at that moment, everyone's going, oh, you can dive with two sensors, do this, do that, blah, 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 you can manage this. And yeah, I probably could, but I don't get in the water with stuff that's broken. And mm. my friends that did died, you know, and 
I could have come home from that dive just fine, maybe, you know, but I set rules and I set boundaries in my head and I have to stick to those to stay alive. And so I think we all have certain boundaries that we have to respect and, mm. and maintain. But if you fail, you know, move on. Like you can't fix what happened yesterday, right? Yeah. It's done. What yeah. are you going to do with it tomorrow? That's where courage comes from. When my husband and I first met, we had very different lives in our youth, and I wouldn't have liked him. In his <laughs> youth, I wouldn't have connected with him. He had a pretty hard knock, you know, streets of Philadelphia life. Yeah. And on our first date, he started to confess to me about all of these things in his life that he'd done or experienced and oh, how I probably, you know, didn't want to get myself entangled with him, you know. And I said to him, hey, you know, that doesn't matter anymore, right? Like the good, the bad, the ugly, everything that happened to you, the failures, the successes, all of that made the man that I see before me today. And I think he's pretty cool. You're only responsible for this guy. You can't change that yesterday stuff. Yeah. You're only responsible for today and what you do with it. What do you think most people think courage is? Uh, I think they think courage is like this crazy jumping into danger mm -hmm. that's that's not thoughtful, right? Like I don't find that courageous. So I'm not one for the big records kind yeah. of thing that are just purely like just grabbing the ticket at the end of the string kind of thing. Like unless it involves something like they've surpassed the, you know, physiological limits of humanity. You know what I mean? They've done yeah. something remarkable in that sense. So so when you run the the faster distance or something like that, yeah, that's that's amazing. I dig that. But when you just throw yourself mindlessly into danger and people call that courage that's not courage mm. that's foolishness yeah you know and luck if you come back seems like you have a ability to not get an air of invincibility which i imagine is a thing that could happen when you oh it's so easy things. and that's what complacency just kills people in tech diving you know yeah. like they like when somebody dies and when a friend dies like the first reaction is, oh, my God, what happened? What did they do wrong? You know, like that's what people do is they immediately start dissecting the accident. Oh, I would never do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But obviously, you know, this friend of yours just did that. So, yeah. <laughs> so obviously some chain of events caused them to do that. So could I do that, too? Well, of course. So so what you know, actions can I take to prevent that from happening? That's the only way I can honor their death is is really to make sure mm. that. I communicate to myself and to others about how to prevent that chain of events and thoughts that cause them to make that decision that day. Yeah. Because we all make stupid decisions. Smart people make stupid decisions. Yeah. Seems like a good mechanism for avoiding overconfidence. Yeah. Yeah. What's the longest you've spent underwater in one? So my longest mission was a 22-hour mission. Wow. And about 13 hours of that was underwater. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And what is a mission comprised of? This was a really crazy project. This was back in uh, 1997, 98, but it's still truly one of the most remarkable technical diving projects, I think, that's ever been conceived. We were diving in a cave that's like 300 feet deep, doing these long distances into the earth, mapping it in three dimensions. It was the first time a three-dimensional map had ever been made in a cave, dry or wet. But... 
Because the dives were so deep, we have to make a really slow stepped progression back to the surface to relieve the pressure on our bodies or we'll get bent, which can be fatal, a decompression illness it's called. So for 13 hours, I'm underwater. And by the time I reached that threshold, I was able to crawl into this this pressurized capsule, like a little, a little space capsule mm-hmm. that we could slam shut and keep me pressurized and hoist that to the surface and lock into what's called a recompression chamber to finish the rest of that, that mission. So I'm still slowly relieving the pressure from my body through those hours and hours and hours. And then after the dive, um, I get out of a can basically <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hang around for a couple hours to make sure I'm not bent. So 13 continuous hours though underwater. Underwater. Yeah. How do you, I, you can't eat? Can't drink water. Uh, you, can. you can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in that case, we were in a in a cave that had pretty good drinking water quality. So I oh, could, interesting. Yeah, um, but we also take food. So okay. my favorite is chocolate milk in a drinking box. You know, like those little Tetra packs. Uh-huh. Because I can I can strap them on the side of a scuba tank, and they when they get wet, they kind of flatten out. But you can still use the straw to like stab it and. Get the chocolate milk out. If you lose the straw, you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, then you're, you're in big trouble. And and um, Snickers bars, but you got to wow. take small bites so that you can chew and breathe and not, you know, huh? Not choke. <laughs> How many calories will you burn on a dive like that? Oh God, I don't know a lot. I mean, I know when I went to Antarctica, our our chef was planning on six thousand calories per day per person in. Jeez. the food supply just to stay warm and to go diving and stuff so wow yeah i mean it's it's athletic on those endurance level kind of experiences you're talking about the dives in antarctica and yeah. when you drop into that water yeah. and just talking about having to resist the reflex to hyperventilate yeah i mean even that in itself is just remarkable because it feels like you should be incapable of resisting that reflex. Yeah, I mean, you have to be really in touch with your body, I would imagine. Yeah, brain freeze. I mean, yeah, everybody knows what it feels like when they walk into the shower and then turn it on and it's accidentally cold, right? Yes. Well, that's probably like 75 degrees, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you jump into Antarctica, it's 28, so one-tenth of a degree colder and it would be a frozen ocean. What's the biggest challenge of being underwater that long from a psychological perspective? I mean, when I was on that project, I was really focused. So, uh, I mean, certainly you just want it to be over. By the time you're on your decompression, like I had five hours of swimming hard in the cave and then I get back to start my decompression and I'm at 260 feet deep. (laughs) And I know that I'm going to be in the water for many, many more hours before before I can get out. So you kind of want to rush on time, but... I wouldn't call it stressful. You're certainly cold, and that yeah. that kind of plays games with your brain. I, I imagine you, you're usually diving with a buddy or with a team, but is that mm-hmm. sort of the solitude of it difficult? Oh, the solitude's the best part of being underwater. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, all the noise of, of life, you know, whether it's like the actual noise or whether it's just the, you know, the monkeys in your head kind of thing. Yeah. All that goes away when you're underwater, and that's part of the allure of diving for me is that you're so in the moment, you're so present underwater uh, that nothing that's happening topside even enters your mind. Huh. Have you found ways topside to 
achieve that same sort of stillness or presence? I've tried. Um, you know, I've tried obviously like meditation and breathing and everything else. And, and it, it's only for moments that I can do that before, you know, the to-do list like just comes screaming back into your head. Uh-huh. It really seems to be only underwater. Huh. And I've taken up free diving too, which is diving without equipment, you know, and you you work a lot on your breathing for that so that you can dive to great depths and stay down for a long period of time. And and for me, that I'm good at it and it's my meditation, but I can't huh. quite get there topside. I guess I was meant to be in the water. <laughs> what do you learn about breathing and freediving? Is there anything that would be of use to someone? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Like I think everybody would. Doing it? Yeah. yeah, I think everybody could benefit from a freediving class. It's it's very empowering because in a very short period of time, in a couple of days, you will be holding your breath for periods of time that seemed unimaginable to you like before. Um, I mean, it's not impossible within a weekend to be holding your breath for two and a half or three minutes. Wow. And what what it is when when you're taught the proper technique and you're diving underwater you get to the moment where you feel like chest spasms like uh, 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 you know i gotta breathe and you might have even been there just swimming in a pool before but when you understand what's going on physiologically you recognize you don't actually have to breathe that's just a physical response of your body but it's But you don't really need oxygen now. So you can go a lot longer. And so if you can just kind of say, ah, that's okay. I know what that is now. And that doesn't need to send me back to the surface yet. You learn to recognize other cues that will inform you. And you just get better and better and better very quickly. So I think it teaches you that you're capable of far more than you imagined that you could be. So you come away from even just a two-day freediving class feeling pretty high, like pretty empowered. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of the questions I had on here was to ask how, you know, you talk a lot about in the book, not a lot, but you you talk about reaching your psychological limit. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just curious what that does do for you on an everyday basis. But Oh, yeah. I mean, as soon as it's a confidence builder, as soon as yeah. you've, as soon as you've achieved something and then you look back at it, because Normally, you don't see it in the moment, but you look back on it and you go, wow, I did that. I remember saying I could never do that or I would never do that. Mm-hmm. And now I've achieved that. So it makes it makes other problems easier to solve. It, it definitely builds your confidence. Wow. Love that. Brings us full circle back to the beginning when yeah. it's like if, you, if you're on the threshold of darkness or uncertainty, sort of run towards it. You don't know what's on the other side. Absolutely. Um, the last thing we ask on this podcast for a favorite fuck up <laughs> so that's a funny question because it just it, like the, the immediate thing that springs to my mind is when we were in antarctica we were looking for our, our iceberg cave and we'd had this hellacious trip 12 days across the southern ocean 60 foot seas we would had one thing after another we'd been trapped in the ice with the boat and everything else and then the captain informs us that we're running low on fuel, right? <laughs> we're 12 days from New Zealand and, and nobody's going to be able to come to us for help. And so I'm like, well, what uh, what are we going to do? Like, wh- what's our situation here? Can you just distill it for me? And, and Nigel says, basically, we're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> so I hear Nigel's voice in my head every once in a while in life. Basically, we're fucked. <laughs> so, so yeah, I've I've had 
I've had plenty in life. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing all of that. My pleasure. It's great talking to you. I appreciate it so much. That's a wrap on today. Thank you, Jill, for coming on. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you enjoyed that, you will probably enjoy her book as well. Again, it's called Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver. Thank you to Jessamine Molly, our producer. We will be back next Tuesday with another conversation about confidence.